0: Streaming has outperformed radio for five years. Labels are reorganizing their teams and refocusing their marketing resources. We're going to talk about what this means to you when we come back. Welcome to Music Industry Cities Tuesday Talkies, where we discuss what's going on in the world of music business. I'm Peter Schwing, and joining me, as always, my co-host Sam Tall. Does like some? you want to chime in about something? and something you want to discuss? Hit us in the comments. Join us in the chat. We're here. Uh, what we do is after we run the segment and that closing credits, we must- magically reappear. And uh, if you're in the if you're in the chat over on Twitch, over on Facebook, over on YouTube, you can join in the conversation. So uh, let's get right into this so uh there is a lot that has been going on with radio and streaming and you know it's like vying for that attention where can you get exposure uh, what this means for the future we had adam lewis a couple weeks ago that we talked about radio and streaming and it's there's some latest news articles coming in and one of the things that we saw here is uh you know, in those recent articles, there was a great quote by Alan Kovac. Radio is all about the passive audience, the one that commutes and is in the car two or three hours a day. And who knows how long that will last as we work more and more from our homes. And that's really important foundation to understand what, you know, we're looking at when we're talking about radio as in terrestrial radio and then streaming and digital radio. So uh, let's go to Sam Tall with his thoughts on this. Sam, hey, hey, what's up? Hey, Peter. This is
1: such a fun one to talk about because it's like everything that is the culmination of the last several years of what we've been talking about.
0: Right. And and this is that whole that change. I mean, if you go back to like 2007, 9, 11, 12, and when we had the crossover between physical product and digital, yep. and then you had digital product and then you had streaming. So now... And we've seen this coming, but streaming versus radio. and you 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 sent over some great articles, and we're going to put those in the show notes below. But uh, you know, and we're, and we're, you know, one of the big other takeaways is also, you know, one of the articles that was like, well, there might be sixty or eighty programmers, and this isn't terrestrial radio across the country that were making these decisions, that's going to whittle down to somewhere between twenty or thirty. So one point that I'm thinking is like, you have less people controlling what gets played.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like the, the iHeart slash Cumulus slash uh, former Clear Channel slash whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's all robo DJs now programming the, the national listening taste because top 40 is top 40 everywhere you go.
0: Right, and and college radio is still important because they, it's a kind of a totally it's kind of a little difference, an outlier from regu- uh, regular terrestrial radio in that sense. But I know you got a lot to say, so uh, take it away. So one of the things that
1: uh, you know struck me about this whole thing is that it's not, it's not remotely new, yet it's being talked about like it is. Uh, I remember. At the beginning of my career, I worked at Downtown Publishing, which at the time still had Downtown Records, and Downtown Records famously had the first uh, single that went number one with no physical product, and that was Narns Barkley Crazy. Uh, great song, but it was kind of like a bellwether for what was to come. It was sort of the uh, you know big uh, hello for iTunes being the dominant force for however long, and that was in 2006, I believe. Uh, but at any rate... That, you know, Gravy Train didn't last very long. It was five to eight years. And, uh, you know, Downtown Records doesn't get a whole lot of talk about these days. Downtown Publishing sure does because they've moved around what, you know, adapted with the changes of the industry, become owner of distributors and pub admins alike. Uh, And it it just kind of points to where the value is, right? And it's in streaming now. We all know this. But what we seem to keep forgetting is that radio is... Uh, competitive with streaming in a lot of ways and not complimentary. It was the case previously that if you didn't own the music, uh, you didn't have the CD, you didn't have the tape, whatever the case may be, you could listen to the radio, find out what was coming new, find out you know what was popular, what you had to drive down the street to go to the store and buy the record, right? Well, now you can just listen to Global Top 50 or Viral 50 or New Music Friday or Discover Weekly or Release Radar, like everything that is now at your fingertips. And uh, I like this notion that uh, you know, radio is somehow for the commuters, radio is somehow for the people who, you know, still drive their cars long distances. Obviously, living in Los Angeles, you know, I can see cars outside my window and, and, and people could be listening to their radios this whole time, except what they're probably listening to is Spotify on Apple CarPlay or Android Auto. It's not radio anymore. Like, it, I, I don't get into a car, a rental car ever uh, or any car ever and, and, and put on the radio. Uh, and maybe that's generational. I'll admit, maybe that's generational. However, I also think there's a cultural and technological shift where if I'm paying money for my streaming and I know that the streaming is going to know me uniquely better than the radio playlist is, like, sure, maybe I want to listen to classic rock radio or I could listen to Spotify's classic rock playlist, which may be semi-algorithmic in that it's part curated. It's 300 or 500 tracks of which 100 or 150 get served to me based on my taste preferences. Like, this is where we are, and I don't understand anybody who's still saying, like, oh, well, we should continue to nurture radio. Radio is still a great place to break. That's true, but – this, you know, it isn't sort of this, you know, be all end all as part of the marketing campaign. And, and Peter, there was something else that I, I sent you. Uh, it was a, a report from Media Research, who I love. I think they do amazing work. Mark Mulligan is brilliant. and His team are doing amazing things for the industry and talking about how marketing in, in this, you know, era, how the fan funnel ought to work. Um, and what I noticed about it is that it kind of played contrast to this variety article about radio that Alan Kovac was quoted in, in that like the, the major label system historically, I mean, you probably have some experience with this, especially talking with all the the, the label heads and, and other industry figures throughout the conference space that you've been in, that like, they very much play one trick uh, for their marketing, right? Like they, the the marketing campaigns revolve around a single object of fancy. And whether that's Uh, spending all your money on whining and dining radio programmers for decades and then having to pivot to whining and dining, uh, you know, record store owners or, or, you know, FYE and Virgin Records and Tower Records and whining and dining the, the merchants buyers at those stores. Or now it's, you know, getting really cozy with playlisters and, and, and the, the age of the, the marquee playlist or your Tuma Basa, your Mike Begain, like that's kind of waning because all those folks are getting kind of undermined by the algorithm, even internal to their own shop, Apple Music and Spotify. So now we're at this point of the new fancy thing, of course, is TikTok Uh, where labels are investing a buttload of money into marketing records on TikTok, but also signing stuff straight off of TikTok. And that's not necessarily a new thing because that's the same thing that happened with Vine. it's It's the same thing that happened with YouTube. It's the same thing that happened with radio, record source, everything. The thing is, it's the age old game of let's do one thing and exhaust the hell out of it and then keep doing that one thing, right? And I think that is probably the most damaging way to proceed with any marketing strategy. Uh, A good friend of mine, uh, Charles Alexander, and another good friend, Dustin Boyer, uh, we like to say in the Artist Managers Connect group on Facebook, we like to talk about uh, that streaming or playlists are not marketing. Playlists are not your strategy. If all you're talking about is playlist marketing, and, and, and Charles and, and Dustin come from this space of, of helping overall marketing campaigns that have a core of streaming and playlisting, but you know they now have kind of expanded their own business service offerings outside of just the streaming plugging space. If all you're doing is streaming marketing, it's no different than if all you're doing is radio marketing, or if all you're doing is TikTok campaigns. It cannot be one thing. I think this is where independent record labels get it right. It's also where independent artists uh, get creative, is you have to be in multiple places. You have to do multiple things. You have to find the fans where they are. And they're not all in one place. Uh, In fact, for some artists, they may not be in the key places at all. There are going to be artists where none of their fans are on TikTok. And so if what you're doing is doing TikTok campaigns, instead of maybe leaning into a band camp, you know, Friday sale day or whatever the case may be, or record store day, if you're, you know, in the independent records and vinyl space, it's like, if what you're doing is TikTok campaigns, you're going to lose from day one. And there's no reason why you should be investing in that if you just know better already. So... You know, I, I've had the fortune of working with some bands that have, you know, signed some pretty lucrative deals with major labels and a couple things that were obviously less lucrative with independent labels. But, you know, you you have pride in it uh, more so than perhaps the major label side. Um, and I've, I've seen what these marketing conversations go like. And as a manager, I obviously get a lot more say in the matter when it's an independent label or a distributor than it is with a major label. And, I, you know, I, I've told this story, I think, in the past on this show, but certainly to some friends of mine where I remember walking into a really long you know, release strategy meeting with a major label um, and telling the artist, pulling him aside at the start and saying, so here's what's going to happen. They're going to say this. They're going to do that. They're going to say this in response. And then we're going to have this meeting. and We're going to walk out feeling it some kind of way. And after seven hours of meeting with every department in that full day of meetings, uh, he said, wow you you hit it nail on like you you predicted every single thing he was going to say as if you know you could see the future it's like yeah cuz i've done this before and it's not different any point in time every single time it's the same it's so freaking frustrating and i just wish this is my key takeaway here is i wish that all artist teams all marketing would just think about the fan wherever they are all the different ways that they are And not focus on any one platform, not focus on any one medium, but focus on the product, focus on the artist, and focus on growing the relationships across the fan base, uh, no matter what that means, but definitely not just trying a one-size-fits-all approach. You do kind of have to reinvent the wheel just a little bit every time.
0: Right on. Uh, I have have a bunch of notes here. (laughs) So... (laughs) (laughs) Uh yeah, a lot going on. So, so uh, let's take it back. Let's let's take it back to the old school. Sure. And talking about radio. I I and, yeah, exactly. When it, when you had like radio and radio, you know, it's like you know, the offices when you're when you're not in a major city like in New York mm-hmm. or Atlanta or in L.A. You know. When you're out there, it's, you know, radio is always just like the old boombox that's dusty and dirty and nobody would want to touch it because it hasn't been cleaned in 10 years. And that's what's sitting in the office on the top of a filing cabinet. And that's what people are listening to. And it's usually one or two stations. So, and they're trying to be as neutral as possible on the station. So you're not going to get the hard rock station. You're going to get what would you just been like, you know, AAA radio, kind of. Mm and I remember years ago, and this, this goes back, you no, know, I don't even know what we're talking, seven years now. You know, and when you look at like when Pandora and going back to your rental car and Pandora sure. made that deal with Ford to get into all of their cars. So it's like, that's the dashboard. Then USB, you can play your Spotify. Then it became now you can just do uh, wire, uh, Bluetooth. So now your playlist. So, you know, and again, generational. And this goes back to somebody at um, uh, iHeart once said to me, it's like, when they talk about specific radio stations, they're like, we're not, you know, Peter, we're, we're not tailoring this towards you. We're not putting our programming to you in this market we're programming this market for the for the 65 year old woman that has to go to the grocery store and she's only going to be in her car 20 to 35 minutes on average and we want to make sure we're entertaining her and giving her the music so she does that she will enjoy so she doesn't change that station and we Mm -hmm. can roll some ads in there and that's basically it um so, but you took a take a look, and you know I've been listening because I've been on Long Island lately and driving, so I've gotten more of a dose of radio <laughs> than. I, and I can tell you, Fleetwood Mac wrote four songs. Stevie Nicks wrote two. Billy Joel wrote nine songs because you know, of course, because it's on Long Island. Elton John wrote four, and Bruce Springsteen wrote three, and, and that's my day. <laughs> So and it's such a concentration of just
1: like you know the nostalgia trip for that kind of a thing too.
0: Mm -hmm. And even it's like it doesn't matter that I'm not listening to the golden oldie station. I'm not station. I'm not listening to the classic station. It's like here's the hits of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and today. And you know it's, I mean it's fun. I, I don't mind like hearing some of it because I'm just going to the store really quickly. But when you go to the store and every time I get into the car, I'm like. The way the rotation always seems to cycle for me is, I'm like, I'm just listening to the same people performer every four hours when I'm in the car. So, take, let, let's now look at this. What we're going on to with the services, and one that in the mm-hmm. article in the variety, uh, and this is going to lead into the technology and the changing of what you were saying is, uh, you know, all we had you had uh, John Fleckenstein, uh from RCA. Uh, say most labels have the playlist streaming team housed in that commerce team because it's attached to a commercialized account. But as playlists get more and more developed, there's a promotional aspect. What we have mm. found is that it's wrong to apply our structure to the world. As playlisting and curation evolves on these platforms, so will our team. So, you know, adapt, uh, you know, adapting to the changing landscape from a major label, which has a li- always had a little more difficult of a time, sure. you know, you know, turning the you know, turning the ship. But you know, you look at it, it's like the playlisting team is in the commerce is part of the commerce team. I yeah, I mean, like I get that there's a debate about whether streaming
1: counts as a sale or as a, a broadcast or a rental or whatever the case is. I mean, like anybody who's tuning tuning into the uh, UK Parliament hearings is is hearing that question repeatedly now. Um, but it, it just seems so obviously not any one of those categories that we're used to, and so to preconceive of it as this like oh well it's a sale. Or it's a broadcast. It's like, well, it's neither a sale nor a broadcast, really. It's also not really a rental in the sense that it's like you have to forfeit this at some point. Uh, you just permanently permanently have access as long as you keep subscribing. So then you know it, it broadens out to like what is Netflix and how do we account for all this sort of media shift? But ultimately, it just you know, I get the prestige value. If you're in the top five on New Music Friday, that's going to have a direct revenue benefit. That's going to be very, very impactful to the sales revenues of that record. If you have a top five on the radio, it doesn't mean shit for the the, the record label other than you know it might end up with more streaming now. It used to mean it was going to end up selling a ton of records. It means a lot for the songwriters and the publishers, which is still super critical and super important, but it's almost like... Why don't the publishers do the radio promo instead of the record labels? You know, like I feel like they could, uh, uh, you know, if RCA was really concerned with Mm -hmm. how they, you know, slotted their radio promo team, their radio pluggers and that, they should just migrate them from RCA Columbia and uh, Epic and move them over to Sony Music Publishing.
0: And, and that's a great, it's like, why isn't public, publishers pushing the radio? I mean, rate, labels have always been anti-radio. Going back to 1920 something, when radio and music started to be playing on the radio format, labels forced their artists to sign a contract or revise their contract and it was a taker to leave it. You are not allowed to have your music played on the radio. Because they feared that it would infringe upon sales. Well, what little did they know that it really boosted sales. But we are one of three countries in the world that radio terrestrial radio does not pay the performers; it only pays the songwriters. And the other countries, right. on top, are North Korea and Iran. So uh, we're in good company <laughs> with uh, those other countries out there. <laughs> you know, our so, best yeah. um, I, You
1: know, I think it's it's just so telling that on the one hand that wasn't preconceived there's just a you know the 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 laggard of the music industry the record labels being behind the curve of technology mm-hmm. it goes back a hundred years it's not just like the oh they're behind the ball on streaming and they're trying to knock down napster etc it goes mm-hmm. all the way back to the inception of broadcast radio but then also the fact that they keep trying to claw it back for the last several decades. And the radio lobby is like, oh no, it would sink our business model, blah, 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 blah. It's like, yeah, every every decade we have the same conversation, but the mm-hmm. same thing. Eventually terrestrial radio, as we know, is going to continue to slip. The issue is going to be moot. Sound exchange is going to collect from digital radio if that continues to be a thing versus Spotify and other sort of algorithmic mix, you know, kind of listening. Uh, I, I think the problem there is going to solve itself. And like, I understand the prestige, prestige value of getting radio play, like, listen, I want radio play for my artists too. It's part of our marketing mm-hmm. campaign, but it's part of the overall campaign, which right. first single, maybe we go to radio. Second single, maybe we go to playlists. Third single, we're going to try something else. Maybe we're going to go TikTok. And then for the album, we're going to kind of all bring it together.
0: I mean, and you go back in different, like in the part of the marketing campaign. I mean, people, I remember when it was like labels, they were like, all right, how do we put sync into our marketing campaign? Mm-hmm. Like, but, but sync isn't a marketing campaign. Sync is, should be on just, like just revenue side as opposed to what's a marketing campaign for sync oh so now we're now we're sending out a team to go pitch music supervisors yeah it's it just becomes all that so I, I do want to bring this uh over into the the um media research article and i, and I looked at sure. it and they again the links are in the show notes and they had that funnel and I honestly I really like I, I, I think they do amazing work. I don't agree with that funnel that they were talking about on this one. Okay. I, I just looked at it and I was like, I, I have to look in more and I because I can't explain exactly what it is. But I do want to touch upon the things that you were saying there. Um you know, you're, they talk about like my the prediction, like you know, many of the services are designed to help harness the fan community model, uh, and like I'm, I'm not going to list all the companies that they're talking about because uh, smart marketing platforms. Um, You know, they will gain success by playing a key role in enabling fan-first marketing strategies. Mm -hmm. Where have we heard that before a million times? Be they for the artist directly or via picking up more projects, being outsourced by labels. I don't know necessarily too much on that. I mean, a lot is coming in-house. You see a lot of the acquisitions Mm -hmm. that have occurred the same goes for creative digital agencies that are focused on knowledge sharing and co-creation with artists as well as marketing strategy and execution uh i'd like to see the definition of what co-creation is and how that is shared within you know taking a slice of the pie where does that fit into the pie right. and where does it fit up front and on the back end uh these so growing real community oriented and cooperative music sites uh, offer new types of distribution infrastructure via curation spaces, and I really hate this line: curation spaces, not unlike Pinterest for musicians. <laughs> are, are we at? It, are we at Gross. the? Are, are we at the? It's the Uber of. It's the Uber yeah. of. It's, and and here's to tie this together with what you were saying. It's about like you know doubling mm-hmm. down, and just like oversaturating. What we have been doing as an industry, as a whole, on any social platform, on any media platform, it's new service, let the kids figure it out, get in there, find the formula, oversaturate, Find the next new platform, rinse, repeat. So it becomes every set platform. And what happens is like, okay, the cool kids are in there. The underground is in there. Like, you know, the independents, they're doing, they still can't make that. They can't get that backing, the funding because they aren't a, a top tier artist. So they're doing it and they're seeing results. And then all of a sudden it's like, everybody's like, oh yeah, look at that. Here's a whole bunch of money to throw at it. Now it's oversaturated and it's plastered with the same exact thing you saw on the last platform mm-hmm. that was launched last year.
1: And it's not even the platforms that are like consumer end audience platforms like your TikToks and your Vines and your YouTubes. It's also like the business platforms. So if you notice things like, you know, we talked to Jeremy Gruber about Foundy right? Foundry is a great tool and it's, it served a lot of people well, and then it got acquired and it's going to be integrated into a suite of tools and it's going to be still be valuable, but it's not going to be on the market anymore. And we've seen things like next big sound that, you know, kind of got acquired by Pandora and then wound down. And a lot of the companies that were providing API access to next big sound to track the data ended up cutting that access because it was anti, it was, it was competitive with Pandora and it would have, you know, opened Pandora up to having access to proprietary info or, you know, creating Competitive advantages. I mean, it's it's this it's this routine. Even with Spotify playlists, right? Like we see these playlist networks come up, like Digster and Filter, uh, and and then they get acquired by the major labels as a vehicle for in-house promotion and plug. Right. So it's it's a it's a routine, like you say, rinse, repeat. What works? What are the independents doing really well? What seems to over-index and allow things like the 1975 and Dirty Hit to become a phenomenon? And then. You know, let's, how do we get involved with that? How do we acquire their company, their intellectual property, their methodology, and then exploit the hell out of it until we exhaust it fully, you know, in the most gruesome, gruesome way you can think of as far as a tech
0: platform? It's always been fascinating to try to understand why. The music industry hasn't figured out a way (laughs) to create like, hey, let's all go in on this platform that is built for us, around us, and then we can share a lot easier. I mean, of of course, I know the challenges. Intellectually, I know the challenge, but it's almost like it is it is going to be somebody eventually that's going to say and it, you know what's going to also be it's going to be blockchain i'm telling you this now okay once <laughs> okay. we can All right. once we can take out some of the middlemen out of that chain you're going to see a whole new ecosystem open up sure okay because the secondary market remuneration all this stuff that is coming, and that's the big thing about blockchain, is because it's going to take some of the middlemen out. That ties in your marketing. That ties in because of these smart contracts, and it's going to be a lot easier to track and understand where it is, and being able to access data. So, you know what's that really is about a-
1: that access data piece is. Every, like you said, everybody talks about like putting fans first, or artist marketing, or transparency, mm-hmm. or use your data, power your marketing, blah, blah blah blah, and then gets you know you know acquired and integrated and you know, made secret and like everything becomes proprietary
0: and murky. And then it's no longer transparent and fan first. That's why blockchain is going to work because it's <laughs> decentralized and you can see, you can see this. So, uh, I, and you know, I'm not say, I'm not one of those like, Hey, everything's it's going to fix everything that, definitely not it's gonna create a whole set of new headaches uh but it will fix some things and it's going to open up different opportunities i mean going to nft so i I don't want to get into like that whole deep dive there but the fact (laughs) is that the labels you know the industry has always been can't figure out say how do we invest in a Mm -hmm. platform that we can create that'll work i mean they tried it with like uh when Napster was out, they they the labels, major labels did come together to try to put together an MP3 platform. They just didn't know how to mm-hmm. do it because they were so behind the curve because they were so anti what's going on. But, you know, it's a different era. And the fact is, there can be something that go all in instead of going all in on Spotify and investing mm-hmm. in Spotify to get them going. And that's just a completely third, uh, you know, different, you know, outside organization that, you know, just because you're investing, in them, it doesn't mean they're going to listen to you. Right. It's why can't there be something of a centralized platform that can grow as labels and you can create an ecosystem within it as opposed to another company that's, you know, you're fighting for those fractions of a penny.
1: I feel like Vivo was kind of an example of what happens when the labels come together and partner with an organization to make something occur mm-hmm. that ends up being a very valuable driver of uh, engagement on the fan level. And, of course, that took advantage of the fact that YouTube was still very new and very fertile ground, and now it's incredibly competitive space. And I you know, work in that space regularly, and I see how competitive it can be and how Vivo as a platform and as a brand Has kind of been subsumed by you know a lot of the initiatives that YouTube has done. Again, just because you're a stakeholder in a thing doesn't mean that that thing has to listen to you all the time. Just like with Spotify. Now, I, I don't have anything to announce, but I do want to say that I am working on something that I hope will kind of help address this. It's something that's near and dear to my heart from an independent manager perspective. Um, and I think there's a lot of great ideas circling the drain that, you know, could potentially just get sucked under. And and one of the things that I want to um, you know, be a part of and anybody who's out there watching and listening, feel free to get in touch and, and we can always go back and forth about this kind of a thing in particular for, you know, whatever projects you're working on, but You know, I do have my fingers in the pie on things that are of the sort that it's like, here's how we build a relationship with the fan. Here's how you build a, you know, recurring revenue around your audience that isn't necessarily just reliant on individual interactions or individual transactions, but is, you know, monetizing the relationship. And it's not just give me money, I give you thing it like which some Patreon platform uh users are kind of like or even to some other kind of transactional platforms like bandcamp or even etsy where it's like i'll send you a thing if you pay me the money for it it's much more about like what is a fan getting out of this relationship with the artist how do we create safe limits so that artists don't feel like they're completely exposed and and lose every semblance of privacy um but how do we make sure that we bring a closeness and, and a personal connection that then is very valuable to the audience as well as very valuable to the creator um you know, like you mentioned, it's no one thing. It has to be a bunch of things and it has to be, you know, very transparent and and has to cut out some of this, you know, middle party that thrives on, you know, creating murkiness in the data to keep their moat and keep people mm-hmm. thinking that they have value when they don't necessarily have value. They just shuffle the money around.
0: Right on. And I think we're going to wrap up with that. I think it's, that's perfect time to, uh, you know, and scene. So uh, thanks, Sam. It's been a fantastic discussion. All right. And uh, that's going to be it for today. Thank you all for tuning in. If you want to continue the conversation, leave a comment below. If you like what you're hearing, hit that follow, like, subscribe, whatever that button is, um, whatever platform you're on, and ring the notification bell, learn about new shows. And you can also find us at musicindustrycity.com where you can register there for free and find out all the other events and the other things that we're doing there's so much going on and uh we're doing the great some vr stuff so there's a lot to like going on that's all i can say so thank you again to my co-host sam tall and have a rocking day peace